Hello and welcome to TalkCast. Well, it, it, it basically is TalkCast. This is a live recording, I suppose. Different to my other live streams, I'm not just doing an AMA and just talking about kind of random stuff. Um, instead, I've come across, I should say, I was uh, provided with a link to an article that I'm going to be responding to because the article gives me a chance to respond to what I regard as some trope criticisms of reason and rationality. A trope in the sense that they come up all the time, I think unfairly, but also there is legitimacy behind them because some people misrepresent rationality. And because they misrepresent rationality, then rationality comes in for this criticism, but it's misdirected. They're criticizing the wrong thing. They're calling it rationality, but in fact, what they're criticizing is, I would say, not rationality. What am I talking about? Okay, so there's this article called The Clenched Fist of Reason, and the link is in the description, so long as I've done everything right. Um, and it's provided to me by Luli Tannett, and Luli Tannett is a great expositor of all things critical rationalism, epistemology, knowledge creation, optimism, all that kind of great stuff. And so she's just one of my uh, ideas on this. So not only respond to her, which I think it couldn't possibly have been done in a tweet or even a thread. Uh, there was just so much in this article. As I read through, it's a very long article. And so many places I wanted to pause at, object to, <laughs> and just point out that this isn't really representing what rationality is. It's called the clenched fist of reason, but then the word reason barely makes an appearance throughout the article. The author is critiquing, at times, a vision of rationality. And I get the impression, just an impression, that he's got specific people in mind that he's responding to, rather than a specific kind of philosophy, so to speak. He's heard certain individuals say things, and he's upset about those things, and he's directing his anger towards what he's calling rationality. But people call rationality all sorts of things all the time, and they get it completely wrong. Uh, oh, good, you can hear me, John. Yes, no, so although I'm live, I'm, I've got comments there. That's good. Um, so although uh, people call these things rationality at times, they're often not rationality, and they give rationality a bad name. They tarnish the reputation of rationality. Look, Stephen Pinker wrote a book called Rationality, and I think that it's irrational in large part. I shouldn't say large part, large parts. A significant minority of the book contains significant misconceptions about what I think rationality amounts to. And it omits a whole bunch of stuff that I think is absolutely essential for rationality. Conjectural knowledge would be one thing. You can't be a rational person if you reject the idea of conjectural knowledge. If you do not mention Popper in your exposition of rationality, or Popperian epistemology, let's say, or the contents thereof, I would say you're being irrational, especially if you claim to have some knowledge of him and his philosophy. So, you know, people can say they're rational and uh, be completely wrong about it. Look, you know, personal, personal anecdote, you know, I was brought up Catholic and I don't practice anymore. And the 
the thing is, you know, you brought up Catholic, you go to a Catholic school, you go to Catholic church very frequently, and you sometimes don't realize what you've got when you've been presented with it. Of course, you know, um, I'm one of these people who say school shouldn't be coercive and the church is authoritarian and all this sort of stuff. However, it's not to say there isn't value there to be found. And I certainly found value. I certainly found value in my time at the church on, in retrospect, excuse me, I wipe my nose. Um, in retrospect, I find that I was sitting in the pews of the church contemplating things greater than myself. I was contemplating in wonder and awe at the magnificence of existence. It really, for me, wasn't about the supernatural. I was given a time during church, let's say, contemplative time, silent. Okay, sometimes I didn't want to be there, but, you know, you have to try and find the gems when you're put into, <laughs> I guess, the darkness. And so, you know, there, there we are, you know, forced, of course, this is not a good thing to be forced into a situation you don't want to be in. But what can I extract from that? I can extract from that. It gave me time to contemplate. It gave me time to do what people talk about as introspection and meditation today. So I fully understand why people are attracted to this particular practice. I do think, I do think the Catholics and their prayer emulate some of the Buddhists and their meditation. They just haven't explained it as well. The Buddhists are very good at explaining precisely what they're doing. The Catholics, not so much. And I know people over time have said things like the difference between Eastern spirituality and Western spirituality is like the difference between Western medicine and Eastern medicine, but in the opposite direction. In other words, there's something precise and which works in Eastern traditions that isn't there in Western traditions. And I just think that's wrong. I think that it is there in Western traditions. It's just that it's not explained well at all. So there is, there is, there is certainly a difference there. But I think that, you know, as a child, I was given this opportunity to sit in these magnificent buildings, contemplate the cosmos. That was for me. And that was a transcendental type of experience for me. Formational. That said, I was one of these people, and there are many such people, that once you leave school in that environment, immediately you find all the zealotry of atheism, which is what I found. I lost you know, any thought that there was anything supernatural at all, and I became committed, a committed evangelist for the, <laughs> the cause of atheism. And eventually I found... Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and uh, Christopher Hitchens. I thought, great, these people are speaking my language, putting into eloquent words what I only hoped I could argue. Yet chief among them, you know, Richard Dawkins, you know, dismissing the entire project of religion basically as worthless, except, you know, it has some good art and architecture. And I bought into this. For a long time and now i think i'm more mature and i reflect on these things and i think that that application of rationality that dismissal of uh 
something about consciousness, about the subjective experience, what might be called spirituality. And as we'll get to in this article, what might be called magic is something that I don't think that rationality rightly does. When claims are made that stand in stark contrast to what the laws of physics permit, then we have a problem. When we have unreasonable claims, when we have things that don't stand up to actual test in the world, you know, com comparisons against physical reality, things that don't work or actively cause harm, then we've got a problem. And this can happen in religion. This can happen in certain ancient traditions. You know, do this thing, it'll help you. And in fact, it harms you. And we'll, I'll come back to that as well. So I'm going to talk about all of these things through the lens of this particular article. This article is just a vehicle for me to not necessarily criticize the author of the article, although I'm going to do that. I don't know the author of the article. I don't know much else about uh, this person, but I think they articulate a particular tone and feeling about rationality, which is important to counter. Because I think I was kind of the person that, the kind of person, the archetypical person that this author has in mind. I was once that person. I think the person that you might have in mind is like a, a Michael Shermer or a Richard Dawkins. Insofar as they espouse rationality, their style and technique can at times be such that it appears they reject mystery. And that can be a problem. Or, or they can appear to be saying that science is near complete or the only game in town or makes everything else lack value because science is the final word on things, okay? And so this comes out of a misunderstanding of rationality and of science and of reason broadly. This idea that we're nearly at the end, we've nearly explained everything, there's nothing ineffable and transcendent out there, much less open problems. It's just another way of saying open problems, by the way. When I say things like transcendent and ineffable, what I mean is inexplicit, inexplicit knowledge. People having an idea that there's something there in reality, but not being able to put it into words. And so therefore you have these spiritual traditions and other kinds of things, ancient wisdom, which try to grapple with the inexplicit. There was that great conversation that Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson had, their first ever conversation on the Making Sense podcast about what the meaning of truth was. And they broke down on lines of, well, Jordan, of course, thought there was this kind of truth that is in stories and narrative, this Jungian way about capturing reality without stating clearly what the facts are, but rather it's more a narrative. There's truth there. There's truth in the stories of the Old and New Testament because that's moral messages there that are, that are true. And he would say that, you know, evolutionarily speaking, what works is true. And Sam would say, look, if you can't explicitly state these facts, then what you're talking about isn't truth, it's something else. You know, and so there are loggerheads on what truth was. And my comment on that at the time was, well, Jordan's talking about the inexplicit knowledge. Sam's talking about explicit. 
they don't have the language <laughs> to actually cross that divide. And so this is why they're at loggerheads. If they could just both admit there are these two kinds of knowledge in the world, neither of which mean final truth, but can contain truth, and we can make the inexplicit more explicit over time, that I think would have solved the uh, <laughs> what some people regarded as the train wreck of a conversation. I don't think it was really a train wreck. I think that they uh, had a meeting of minds and they articulated both misconceptions about how to talk about mythology and misconceptions about how to talk about explicit science and facts. They would have that if they had David Deutsch. Be that as it may. Let's go to this article. You can read along if you can look in the, um, the description to this video called The Clenched Fist of Reason. I should say, let me, um, I'm just looking off to the side here because I have my computer over here. Um, I'm going to look up what the question was that Luli actually asked me. Luli asked, um, and she tweeted out, at Talk Teacher, I'm curious how you see critical rationalism fitting into this article, which says there have been waves of spiritualism, followed by rationalism, followed by spiritualism. Is there something more enduring about it or another wave coming? So I apologize to Luli. I'm, I'm kind of going to ignore, um, I'm not going to ignore the question, but the purpose of this video really isn't. It's just in passing, I'm going to be answering that question. So uh, I'm doing that courtesy, I hope, so I apologize. I never got to you on Twitter, so hopefully this makes up for that. I, I'm, I don't know how I see critical rationalism fitting into the article. I don't like to, you know, I don't like to speak for critical rationalism. I don't know <laughs> sometimes what people mean when they talk about critical rationalism. Even though, you know, people like David Deutsch, myself, Luli might answer to critical rationalism in the absence of any other label, I don't like these ideas. I just think that there's epistemology there is knowledge. There's the study of how knowledge is created and replaced by better knowledge, how progress occurs. And I just call that epistemology. Now, people can say that's, well, that is critical rationalism, which, okay, but there are flavors of critical rationalism. I just think there's the only one way in which knowledge is created. It's the way in which knowledge is created. It's because like there's physics. Okay, so people talk about Everetti and quantum theory, but really it's just physics and appending Everett to it, it turns it into sort of a subjective idea that you know somehow or other this person has laid down what quantum theory is when he did no such thing he gave us uh an insight an insight into how to understand quantum theory but he doesn't own it so it's not ever ready in quantum theory it's just quantum theory and quantum theory says that there's a multiverse and so on it's the same way, by the way, that people talk about Deutschian. It's the wrong term. There is no Deutschian philosophy. There is no Deutschian perspective on things. There is no Deutschian optimism. There is optimism in David Deutsch's sense, but really it is just an idea that is out there in the world, objective, independent of anyone else. Now, David has explained these things, but it doesn't make it Deutschian. Deutschian is the wrong term. It's subjective. These are not subjective ideas. This is not about a person. Ayn Rand had this idea. She rejected the notion that, and she regarded it as an insulting, that her philosophy, which she called objectivism, I think wrongly, okay, that's another story, but anyone who called it Randian, 
was insulting her. She didn't want that to be said because, among other things, it reduces ideas to the contents of a particular person's mind, and they're not about that. David Deutsch's version of various philosophies can be understood, refined, and improved upon. And, and at that point, they'll be taken away from he can be the originator, but it doesn't mean it remains that. In the same way that, you know, Einstein, we say Einstein's general relativity, but he doesn't own it. He should be credited for inventing it in the first place, but to continue to say, well, Einsteinian physics, it's misguided. It's not Einsteinian physics. It's not like we're, again, subjectivist. This idea that you can just pick and choose your physics. I'll pick Einsteinian physics today and then Bohmian physics tomorrow and Newtonian physics another day. No, there's physics and there's our best understanding of physics. Now, David Deutsch just happens to have the best understanding of a whole bunch of things, and so including optimism. But it is there is a, a specific species of optimism explained by him. What I'm saying now is cease using the word Deutschian. It, it, it's not it's not correct. And so when we get to um, talking about critical rationalism, I sometimes have a difficulty as well because I just want to understand knowledge. So I don't, um, so first thing I'm going to apologize to Louis and say, I don't know the answer to that question. I'm going to object towards the end and I'll get to this, about this idea of the waves coming. I, I just think the, the article asserts that, but I'm not persuaded at all. I'll give my, they've given a version of history of this version of history as being, as Lully said, um, waves of rationalism followed by spiritualism. That's the way the article presents a vision of history. I'm going to reject that and say that I don't think that ever happened. I don't think it happened. There, there have been epochs where there have been these, as Dave would say, mini enlightenments, but this is not waves. And, and by the way, it would be historicism to say another one's coming based on that fact. Someone has said, defining rationalism too closely slips into essentialism. I couldn't agree more. That's exactly right. This idea of trying to define things very closely. Just, let's just stick with explanations. The explanation of how knowledge progresses is epistemology. That's the domain. That's the subject area. Um, yeah, and, and, and Popper and Deutsch together have produced the best version of that. Okay, so let's go. We've got to for much longer than I anticipated. Um, haven't even started reading the article. It's been 20 minutes. Okay, The Clenched Fist of Reason. So firstly, <laughs> that's the title of the article. Already you're put into, I've written some notes here, but already I'm put into a mind of a negative view of reason. But reason's not a clenched fist. You know, It's a light. It's a means of finding a solution. It's the means of improving stuff. It, it, it can help produce more joy and wonder in the world. It's not antagonistic to meaning. It's a source of meaning. It's not antagonistic to experience, the ineffable, the transcendent, or anything that can possibly be or be experienced by a person. Reason is not antagonistic to any of those. For anything, anything that can possibly be understood can be understood via reason. Reason is the means of understanding. Reason deals in all aspects of the world from the mind and its contents through to its experiences, its perceptions, emotions, thoughts, ideas in the world, whether those ideas are accepted or rejected. That's all the domain of reason. Nothing, nothing is outside of reason, except unreason. Okay, and unreason is a path to 
death and destruction. It just denies, it's just reality denial. If something is part of reality, then it is amenable to reason to uncover that thing, including what is going to be called magic in this article. If it exists in reality and it works, it's amenable to reason. So reason is not a clenched fist. There's no clenched fist of reason. It's a hand offered, offered in assistance. Here's some help. This is reason. This is the thing that's going to help you. But its opponents apparently come ready for battle and cast it as the violent enemy. They cast reason and rationality as the provocateur. The same kind of people who cast criticism as altogether always destructive, rather than itself truly being what it is, which is a creative act. And so it goes. So you get these the, 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 the anti-rational streak through people. And this is anti-rationality <laughs> at times in both senses, both being simply in opposition to rationality and in inculcating means that, memes that might suppress the means of error correction, perhaps. We might get into that. Okay, so the author writes, quote, I mentioned in last month's post here that our familiar term world is a rounded off version of the old English world, which means man old, the time or age of human beings. That bit of etymology conceals more than one important insight. As I noted last month, it reminds us that this thing we call the world isn't something wholly outside ourselves, something we experience in a detached and objective way. It's something we create moment by moment in our minds by piecing together the jumble of unconnected glimpses our senses give us. And we do the piercing, piecing according to a plan that's partly given us by our biology, partly given us by our culture, and partly by our function of our individual life experience. End quote. Yes, um, we do get ideas that way. So I've got no problem with some of that. But we need to keep this in mind because this is going to come up again and again throughout the article. This is my third read of the article now. There's a stark difference between the world and our ideas about the world. We don't create the world moment by moment. We create knowledge of the world. Saying we create the world in our own minds is misleading. We create knowledge of the world in our minds. Very big difference between the world and knowledge of the world. Some people have, I had trouble grappling with this. And I can't, you know, thinking back now, <laughs> I don't know, I guess over 20, 25 years ago or something, it was David Deutsch who brought me out of this. This was an email exchange um, that I had with him. But I can't remember why my psychology was such that it was back then. But it was a revelation to me that there was a difference between the world and our knowledge of the world. Obviously, I wasn't a fallibilist. I had the idea. I'm trying to remember what my psychology was back then. I had the idea that when we wrote down the laws of physics, we were writing down the ultimate and final laws of physics. That was it. That was reality. It was David who had to explain to me and persuade me, which he did just by telling me. <laughs> Look, there's a difference between the world, reality, physical reality out there, the thing that science explains, and the knowledge that science creates. The knowledge of the world is not the world. 
ultimately becomes part of the world, but it's still not the world. It represents the world. It models the world. It explains the world, crucially. So those who actually say or conflate the world and our ideas of the world sort of fail to make a distinction between those two things. It really is a version of idealism. The failure to distinguish between knowledge or thoughts or ideas and the things they are knowledge, thoughts, or ideas about. Let's keep going. So he goes on to write, quote. Uh, so he's just said, um, that, that our, our ideas are given to us partly by our biology, culture, and our individual life experience. And then he goes on to say, quote, that point is astonishingly easy to forget. I've long since lost track of the number of times I've watched distinguished scientists admit with one breath that the things we experience around us aren't real. They're just representations constructed by our sense organs and brains. Well, I would say well, we can ignore those people. <laughs> there is a reality out there. Okay, but I'm not sure the author, I think, might agree with that. Anyway, so the author's just said, I've long since lost track of the number of times I've watched distinguished scientists admit with one breath that the things we experience around us aren't real. They're just representations constructed by our sense organs and brains reacting to an unimaginable reality of probability waves in four-dimensional space-time and then go on with the very next breath to forget all that and act as though matter, energy, space, time and physical objects exactly as we perceive them are real in the most pig-headedly literal sort of objective sense as though the human mind has nothing to do with any of them except as a detached observer, end quote. So this has echoes of Donald Hoffman. Donald Hoffman's the most recent instantiation of this and tries to make this precise. I've done lots of critiques of him recently. Um, so I won't recapitulate that now because I'm doing it here. Look, what was just said there is also wrong because we perceive nothing directly Yet, our ideas about reality don't come from nowhere. They come from in us and are about that reality, tested against it. The testing against the reality is because it's reliable, because you will be able to repeat the test and get the same results, tells you something about the existence of those things that you're testing for the existence of. Our claims about the world are about something. About what? Well, those things that we explain as real. But the fact that we explain something as real does not mean we perceive them as they are or that we are making an infallible claim. We can regard explanations as lenses of a kind that bring things into focus more and more clearly. But we can always have a warped lens. We could always have dirt and smudges on the lens. We could have an almost entirely out of focus lens. But that we're seeing something and the fact our lens brings into view things that when we prod them, react in predictable ways and allow us to construct grand creations and technologies to control a whole lot of that stuff out there means that what we perceive is not nothing and simply made up by our minds. It means we can have some clarity, but just never final clarity. The fact that this stuff works is important to appreciate and often forgotten by crit critics of science, the scientific worldview, 
and rationality. The theories aren't just narratives about the world because they actually allow you to build stuff. You can actually construct the airplane that flies. You can construct the computer that calculates. These things work and they don't work by accident. And also, the attempt to divorce scientific theories from technology and engineering is itself a completely unreasonable and irrational thing to do. But people try. They say, oh, no, that's engineering. It's actually not based on something. Now, it is. You require and understand explanation of scientific theories in order to build the computer, for example. He goes on to say, quote, What's more, many of those same scientists proceed to make sweeping claims about what human beings can and can't know and do in blithe disregard of the fact that these very claims depend upon the same notion of the objective reality of the world of experience that they've just disproved. So I don't really follow that entirely, end quote. But as, as someone who endorses a rational worldview informed by the best ideas that we have, I hope, ideas that have been refined over time, shown to work to some degree of accuracy, then I think we can make some claims about what we can and cannot know. We cannot know, for example, how to write down proofs for theorems that are demonstrably not provable in good or sense. We can't know that kind of thing. We can't know if certain programs will halt in Turing sense. We cannot know what the next highest prime number is above the one we already know without knowing it. So there's a highest prime number at the moment. Look up Wikipedia. What the next one is, we don't know yet. So that with that, we don't know. But we can know. We just have to keep looking. We know that we can't know the highest prime number because there isn't one. We cannot know the content of future knowledge in general. There is much we cannot know. And that we know. <laughs> okay, he goes on to say, quote, it's a fascinating example of doublethink, and we'll be talking about its implications more than once as this discussion proceeds. That said, there is another insight hidden in that deceptively simple term, world, which is that the world, the man-old, the thing that we're used to experiencing as an objective reality independent of our consciousness, even though it's nothing of the kind, is defined not by space but by time. It's not a place but a time of human beings, and it has a history, end quote. So he said there that the thing we're used to experiencing as an objective reality, independent of our consciousness, independent of our consciousness, well, I would reject that. I don't think objective reality is experienced if by that we mean experience directly. We don't experience reality directly. It's important to appreciate. Uh, this comes out of the work of David Deutsch and Karl Popper. You want to call it critical rationalism? Well, here's rationalism for you. We experience, or indeed, we are the experience of electrical crackles, as David Deutsch talks about that. That's what we are. That's The brain is neurons, synapses, firing. That's what we are. We are the mind, one representation of each, of which is what's happening inside of our brain right now. That's what we are. Our brain interprets these synaptic firings, um, which themselves give rise to what we see and hear and feel. We're minds instantiated on brains encased in the darkness of skulls. 
were far removed from experiencing objective reality directly. We do, however, interpret objective reality. We interpret objective reality and know it exists because we can test for it. We can use our reason. And as for it being independent of our consciousness, we'll also know that's a bit slippery. We also create the reality around us to some extent. And consciousness is part of reality as well, by the way. Now, there are phenomena in the universe where we can ignore the effects of consciousness. Uh, you know, in the scientific realm, this is often the case. You know, when the next supernova occurs in a galaxy millions of light years away, well, that's objective reality that is independent of our consciousness. That's happening regardless of whether or not there are people here on Earth. But when the next announcement is made by the President of the United States about a defence deal between Australia and the UK, as happened today, that's not independent of our consciousness, or the consciousness of some people anyway. Nor is art, the products of artistic endeavour, independent of consciousness, nor is journalism, or I dare say, much that's going on on the internet. These are not independent. These are parts of physical reality that are not independent of our consciousness, but shaped by it, shaped by thoughts occurring, thoughts that we're conscious of. He continues, quote, Part of that history needs to be traced out over the scale of evolutionary time. Owen Barfield pointed out almost a century ago, for essentially the same reasons I've just cited, that all those images of dinosaurs lumbering around in vaguely tropical jungles are works of imaginative fiction. Images of what the prehistoric past would have looked like to human beings had there been human beings around to view it, which of course there weren't, end quote. So I'm not sure what the claim is that's being made here. That there weren't dinosaurs? This idea that the pictures are works of imaginative fiction, yes, but, big but, the word fiction being used there is quite slippery because they're interpretations. They're not fictions in the way that an illustration of a dragon or a unicorn is. Or better yet, the, the creatures from Avatar or Star Wars. You know, there, ex there really do exist fossils and there exists other evidence, you know, trapped in amber and all sorts of clever techniques that the uh, paleontologists use these days to interpret and explain evidence, evidence, physical evidence. J.R.R. Tolkien was not digging for evidence in the physical world when he dreamed up Smaug the Dragon or Gothmog the Balrog. He may have been riffing on parts of the Bible, which themselves were riffing on ancient myths, oral traditions. But there's a, a real difference between fiction unconstrained by reality, the free flight of the imagination, versus interpretations which are not perfect representations of reality, but which are constrained by the evidence. You're not just free to draw any dinosaur that you like. You're constrained by the fossilized remains. And perhaps these days, you know, scant amounts of DNA which can tell you something or whatever chemicals are left which tell you something about the skin colour. They can do that these days and whether they had feathers and that kind of thing. So to use fiction for both of these things disguises the fact that there is this distinction to be made between someone trying as hard as they can to make a, an accurate representation of a dinosaur and someone who out of whole cloth, as far as is possible, 
uh, invents the character of E.T., the extraterrestrial. There's a difference. One is whole, holy fiction, unconstrained by any physical evidence, and the other one is wholly constrained by physical evidence insofar as it can be. So fiction, using fiction for both disguises that essential difference, that important difference. And anyone who insists, oh, no, they both really are fictions. Well, a Wittgensteinian again, a Wittgensteinian definition game. And in which case, I'll just say, fine, okay, call dragons Harry fiction then. Still fiction, Harry fiction. And call dinosaurs William fiction. There's a black and white difference between Harry and William. Harry is completely made up fiction, uncoupled from reality, and William is bound by physical reality as it appears in rocks, rocks which kick back when kicked. <laughs> okay. Going on. Quote. The author says, more than a century of research into the nervous systems and cognitive processes of other living things have shown definitively that they don't experience the same world as you and I. A cat, for example, has modes of visual processing hardwired into its eyes and brain that are radically different from the ones that you have in yours. Have you ever watched a cat staring intently at something you can't see? Something is setting off the cat's visual processing neurons, and not yours. So whatever the cat sees is part of the cat's world, but not part of yours. Uh, end quote. How do they know it is part of the cat's visual processing neurons? How is that known? I'll come back to that. But anyway, um, this idea that the cat perceives stuff that we don't. Well, there's easier examples than that. Uh, eagles or other birds who actually have more red cones in their retinas, the retina of their eye. So they must be able to distinguish more shades of red than humans, and that's experimentally testable. Or snakes who can perceive heat. Again, experimentally testable. They've got infrared detectors. Or bats and dolphins who use echolocation. But, but, humans routinely detect all of those signals and more. That's what sonar and radar, radio, telescopes, infrared cameras, microphones, and more besides allow. To see and experience more of the world by augmenting ourselves, like some sort of super cyborg. We see way better than any animal, way more distant, all the wavelengths of light. Nothing, we are blind to nothing now in terms of wavelengths of light. We can hear anything. We can see the heat left over from the Big Bang. The mere ability to have these senses in your mind somehow is of little benefit when you don't understand what it is you see. But this is what humans can do with our technology. We far exceed the capacity of any animal to have an experience of these things. If by have an experience means detect that thing. Now, if you want the thing fed straight into your brain via some neural link, well, one day it's coming. We're not there yet, but I don't see why this is a massively significant philosophical issue. It's not. In either case, we want to understand what it is we detect. The cat doesn't understand a thing. <laughs> he goes on to say, quote, in evolutionary terms, mind you, the cat and you are practically kiss and cousins. Factor in 100 million years of evolutionary history and the yawning genetic chasm that separates you from, say, an allosaur out for a pleasant stroll in the greenery of a Jurassic Cycad forest, Cycad forest, and you might have some sense of how different the world that the allosaur experienced was from yours. The allosaur saw, heard, felt, and smelled a world vastly different than you would have experienced had you been hiding from it and its hungry kin 
in that same forest, end quote. This is Wittgenstein again. <laughs> this is pure Wittgenstein. Um, if a lion could speak, if, if, a lion? Yeah. if a lion could speak, we would not understand it. You know what you mean? You know, he's experience, it's experience, it's frames of reference. The things that it understands are different to us. Okay. People make a big deal about it. I just think the lion doesn't understand a thing. This idea that these other animals have different experiences to us. Okay. And one person has a different experience to another. Um, by the way, you couldn't experience, well, not for long anyway, dinosaur times. The oxygen levels were higher back then. Uh, if you did step out of your time machine and you weren't in a spacesuit back 62 plus million years ago, you'd be dead pretty quick from hyperoxemia, you know, the too much oxygen. Um, the atmosphere was different then. It was an alien world, <laughs> literally. Going on. He says, quote, there were likely things in its world, the Allosaur's world, that you wouldn't have perceived at all, and vice versa, because its sense organs and nervous system were variations on the standard megalosaur model, while yours are variations on the radically different standard primate model. Until there were homonyms with eyes and nervous systems sufficiently like yours, even the most basic elements of the world, you know didn't yet exist because, again, the world is not out there. You don't... You don't observe the world. You construct it, end quote. Oh, there's just so much there. Um, look, there are many things hidden from us, but we can, if they present a problem, detect them. This idea that these other animals have these different senses is irrelevant to us being able to actually detect these things. Like I said, you know, the snake can detect infrared radiation, but it's not like infrared radiation is a huge mystery to us. All one needs to do is to get a pair of infrared glasses and you can see everything the snake can see and more. We have x-ray telescopes. No animal can detect x-rays. We can. Having an experience of the things that other animals can detect using physical senses, it's just detecting energy, by the way, vibrations in the air or vibration... Uh, in the form of photons, okay, energy, we're detecting energy with our senses. Instruments can do that if our raw senses can't. This is no great problem for understanding the world. That animals have different senses doesn't mean that they have access to some information that is denied to us. No, we can always detect whatever it is. And we don't find any huge mystery, by the way. It's not like you put on the infrared camera and you suddenly start seeing heaps of stuff that you normally wouldn't. Of course, at night, things are different. But it's not like you see more interesting things. It's not like you get an insight about the world. Yeah, the sun's a lot brighter and certain things are a lot brighter. But so, okay. But there's all sorts of things hidden to us that is hidden to everyone that are a mystery, like dark matter if it exists. That's a curious case. There we go. We've kind of detected something that we can't even see. That's remarkable. And of course, yes, always, in heaven and earth, there's more than dreamt of in our philosophy, as the trope goes. We can agree there are things in our sense that our senses can't perceive. And hence the existence of this thing called science, because it explains 
what we do see in terms of the unseen. We know the unseen is there. And if you're really pushed, then, as I say, our instruments, our telescopes at all wavelengths of light and our microphones at all wavelengths of sound can image or detect those things. Really, we're becoming more and more like gods or like Superman of a kind, more and more omniperceptive compared to our ancestors and certainly compared to any animal. We'll never get the ability to see and hear it all, okay? because all of it is all of physical reality. But that's just a consequence of physics and the infinite in all directions complexity of objective physical reality. But this idea that, that this author says that there at the end, it's important to linger on. He said, quote, you don't observe the world you constructed, end quote. This sounds very similar to the paper I was talking about recently by Wheeler that explains his it from bit concept. He had the idea of the participatory universe. The participatory universe was essentially this idea that you kind of create the world through perceiving it. But it's all mistaken. We construct knowledge of the world. And sometimes that knowledge allows us to create physical stuff in the world. Okay? Art and music, buildings, computers, phones, relationships. Joy. Create joy. New breeds of cat. Dogs and cows. Missiles and missionaries. Jets and jam, etc. Okay, So we, we, we do construct the world. So we don't merely observe it, we construct it. We construct and observe the world. If we have explanations of it. So we do construct the world in one sense, but it's not either or. It's not observe or, or construct. We observe, we construct, and we do both of those things only because we can explain. That's the heart of it all. There's every reason to think, um, well, actually, end my comments there. Let's go on to what he says next. Quote, there's every reason to think that within a certain fairly modest range of individual variation, one cat constructs much the same world, or rather the same cat old, as any other cat. The same was most likely true of allosaurs. Though it's only fair to admit that cognitive testing of dinosaurs is a little beyond the capacity of today's scientists. That similarity is much less true of human beings because of one of the evolutionary twists that pole vaulted us out of our Australopithecine ancestors' comfortable niche as a savannah-dwelling primate and sent us scampering around the globe, end quote. Yes, okay. Um, look, people are as different one from another as one species is from another. In other words, quite, <laughs> quite different, very different. Okay. People have radically different experiences of the world, and because of the way we generate knowledge, the older we get, the more different we become one from another, except the people that perhaps we share a home with, we become more similar to over time, but still we have ex vastly different experiences of the world. Uh, but again, this, as he says there, um, the, the, this idea of constructing the world, the, what we mean is, what, what's really meant, what should be meant is we're constructing knowledge of the world. And people construct different kinds of knowledge of the world. But when we use reason, we can converge. Scientists can and do converge on the best explanation. What exists in physical reality. 
Not perfectly, but reliably, especially in science. When we get to unknown places in science, of course, everywhere is a horizon in science. Everywhere is ripe for a new discovery. But in general, in science, we have agreement on much and then disputes about where the active research is happening. That's where people struggle to come to agreement because they're trying to generate new knowledge. But the fact that we have different models of the world is just a necessary fact of existence. We create knowledge in different places and at times because we ourselves are subjects. We can perhaps, I think often we can make too much of the fact that we're separated by time and space and our background knowledge. We can and do converge on much because if we didn't, then, you know, communication would be impossible. He goes on to say, quote, cats constructed their cat olds and allosaurs presumably constructed their allosaur much olders on the basis of genetically transmitted patterns that are hardwired in their nervous systems and are triggered into activity by parental behavior. Cats teach their kittens how to hunt, for example, and it's been suggested by paleontologists that allosaurs did much the same thing for whatever you call baby, baby allosaurs. But in both cases, parental instruction serves as what ethologists call a releasing mechanism, a way of triggering and fine-tuning patterns that are put in place by genetics, end quote. Yes, I agree with that. It's nice to see it, actually, because this point is often poorly appreciated by people. There is knowledge in the genes, but the knowledge isn't of the form, you know, for a cat. Um, yeah, here's how you catch a mouse, but rather, here's how you react to fast-moving things. And, you know, here is how these particular muscles and tendons work and so on. So we have what is technically called behavior passing, even with cats. So the cat teaches the, teaches the kitten how to hunt, and this is the real thing, because at some point in their deep, dark ancestry, one of them, to survive, had to figure this thing out of how to hunt. And part of that, part of those behaviors have been passed on through the genes, and they can be recombined in different ways, these behaviors. So it can sometimes appear to be the construction of knowledge, but it's not. It's just a reordering at times of knowledge that's already there in the genes. But this reordering, this behavior passing, is not the generation of new knowledge, much less explanations. Okay. Um, he goes on to say, quote, human beings also have a fair number of hardwired reactions and releasing mechanisms. The way a child learns to understand and use language is exactly akin to the way a kitten learns to hunt, end quote. No, it is not. No, it's not. It's far from it. The way a child learns language, no doubt, contains some analogues of what happens in other animals, but the fact we learn language is unique, and the methods for learning it are unique as well. It's not behaviour passing. It is genuine conjecture of ideas and refutation of them. Now, there must be inborn ideas of how to make sounds, for example, but that these abilities are so extremely elastic in human beings that the same kinds of brains and minds can be placed in as diverse locations with diverse languages as China, where you will learn the sounds required in order to speak Mandarin, 
or in England to learn the sounds required to speak English or, you know, name your country, Argentina, to learn Spanish, says something about the fact that words and word order and specific sounds, they're not hardwired at all. They are conjectured. Now, why learning languages later on in life becomes harder for many is another story. But I guess my conjecture is it's largely to do with the accumulation of anti-rational memes over time, learned while learning the first language. But, you know, initially we lack those anti-rational memes. And so learning takes place really swiftly because we have no hang-ups about things. We have zero hang-ups. We gradually accumulate hang-ups over time through poor teaching, <laughs> poor, poor lessons being delivered to us and so on. Existing in a culture which doesn't allow children to thrive maximally. But I doubt we're born with any hang-ups. I, doubt, I really doubt that. Insofar as we are, they're minimal. The overwhelming majority of hang-ups which prevent you from learning stuff rapidly later on are learned. They're cultural. He goes on to say, quote, but we've also evolved a way of modifying those genetic patterns to a much more dramatic degree than cats do or allosaurs did. In the process of learning language and the other dimensions of its culture, a young human absorbs a distinctive way of constructing the world, end quote, constructing knowledge of the world, a model of the world in their minds. The distinction here really, really matters because it's otherwise conflating what exists with what we know about it. What does not need to be constructed by the mind with what is constructed by the mind. The mind is constructing ideas about something. It's not just constructing the world. <laughs> the mind exists in the world and is learning about it. Okay, so he goes on to say, he's just said, um, a young human absorbs a distinctive way of constructing the world and that cultural pattern pushes, pulls and prods the inherited world structure shared by all human beings into a culturally distinct form. The content of cultural transmission thus varies from culture to culture and from person to person. Even though the capacity for cultural transmission has been hardwired into the brain by millions of years of hominin evolution. Is hominin a word or is hominid? Anyway, um, millions of years of hominin evolution. So the capacity, he says, the capacity for cultural transmission has been hardwired into the brain by millions of years of evolution. Well, what I would say about that is that capacity of being hardwired, if it has been hardwired, it's infinite. It's an infinite capacity. It's an unbounded capacity. We have an unbounded capacity to transmit cultural knowledge. What do I mean by that? Well, what the author seems to mean is the hardwired capacity is limited in some way. But say it were, well, that's just a soluble problem, soluble by knowledge creation. How to transmit knowledge beyond what genetics gifts us? <laughs> you know, for, for, for example, um, genetics limits the volume of human voices. So that's going to slow transmission of cultural knowledge. Cultural transmission by yelling out your window using your voice, your ideas, is going to limit their reach. <laughs> but of course, knowledge creation these days has allowed for megaphones and radios and the internet. So cultural transmission is unbounded via the means of technology. Messages can get far and wide at the speed of light. 
as we know. He goes on to say, quote, most people can instantly remember the words and melodies of whatever songs were playing around the time they hit puberty, for example, and that's not accidental. In tribal cultures around the world, that's when young people get taught the traditional chants and incantations that guide them through their adult lives. And much of the same sort of imprinting that allows toddlers to pick up the grammar of their native language effortlessly functions here to fix traditional songs or top 40 hits in permanent memory when those same toddlers reach their teens. Just pausing there, my reflection on that. That would be a form of Lamarckism, if it were true. Um, I don't think that people were getting wiped out because they couldn't remember particular chants. I don't think that's the case. I don't think this is the explanation for why people remember songs during a particular era of their lives. And I also don't think that's a universal truth, just by the way. I'll just finish reading it and we'll go on. He says, quote, one point that needs to be remembered here is that this imprinting process isn't conscious and that the imprints left by it can't be changed by the conscious activities of the mind. Those of my readers who have ever tried to get a song out of their minds know this from personal experience. End quote. Well, that's everyone. So those of my readers, okay, everyone has had that, that experience. Um, imprinting. So he's, he's, okay, he's come up with this. Thing, I think, yeah, some, some other people use this term imprinting as well. Interest, interest in a particular thing. Something is interesting to you. You're focusing on it. Don't you remember in your 20s when you were really focused on music and going out and dancing and listening to particular music over and over and over again? Why aren't you doing that now? If you were, you would remember the songs that are popular now, but you're not. Why? Maybe during your 20s, you're looking for a partner and so you're going out to these various places where you're playing the same songs over and over and over again, nightclubs and so on, pubs, whatever, wherever you listen to music. You're interested in music because it's the, it, it has something to do with making friends and so on. Later on, you've got your friends, you've got your partner, you listen to music to reminisce. Most of us. Now, my partner is someone who remembers the words of obscure present-day K-pop songs put out uh, this year or last or 10 years ago better than the songs of the 80s and 90s. Now, th this imprinting thing is not universal. So I'm not sure that explanation is true at all. Uh, yeah, sure, it was something that tribes needed. But my guess is that, again, again, this has to do with the accumulation of memes. If you're lucky, you don't accumulate quite so many anti-rational memes. Why are some people polyglots and others aren't? Interest is a factor, but what causes the interest? Again, my conjecture is luck of the draw and being exposed to particular memes or not taking on or learning those memes, so to speak, and not having the knowledge of how to correct certain errors. Some people will be uh, better or worse at remembering songs, sounds, and reproducing them as well than others, based upon their ideas, ideas gained early on in life. I don't think this is, uh, again, I don't think there's a universal truths. Uh, they might be common, but universal, I don't think so. I don't think this is the explanation of what is happening with that phenomenon.
uh, he goes on to say, quote, <clears throat> okay, I'm going to have to completely reword this paragraph in a minute. So the paragraph as it reads now is, the imprints each human being absorbs from his or her culture then get overlaid by various kinds of individual experience. Thus, as I've noted earlier, the worlds we each construct have three layers, a personal layer derived from life experience, a cultural layer derived from childhood imprinting, and a biological layer derived from the evolutionary background of our species. Each of these, in turn, has a history, and that's where we start straying into some very controversial territory. End quote. Right. I have to fix that. He says, the imprints each human being absorbs, I would say, the knowledge each human being conjectures from his or her culture then get overlaid by various kinds of individual experience. Thus, as I've noticed, uh, noted, noted earlier, the worlds we each construct have three layers. No, the knowledge of the worlds we each construct have three layers. A personal layer derived from life experience. No, a personal layer conjectured from life experience. A cultural layer derived from childhood imprinting. No, again, conjectured or learned from childhood imprinting, so-called imprinting. And a biological layer derived um, from the evolutionary background of our species. Well, a biological layer perhaps contained within our genes. But even then, it's, you know, it's, it's still a form of conjectural knowledge. Um, so the language here is um, obviously not in accord with the way in which Popper would have explained epistemology and how we go about constructing knowledge of the world. Far be it from constructing the world. There is no such deriving of knowledge in that way. We have experiences of all kinds. Our way of seeing the world, our knowledge of it, is, yes, shaped by the culture that we're in. We have cultural knowledge of how to move throughout our society. We need to. I need to know that in Australia, I stand on the left when I'm on an escalator or something like that, if you're motionless, so that people can overtake you on the right. In other countries, it's different. That's cultural knowledge it helps me move around okay people learn that pretty quickly there's all sorts of cultural knowledge like that what to do in particular situations how to behave what the expectations are what you do to make your way in the world there are also so that's cultural knowledge which you you pick up you don't have to know explicitly at times the the rules of grammar of english any native English speaker doesn't have to know them explicitly, can't say, you know, what the rule is. Might not know what the past perfect tense is, unless they've studied this stuff. Or why you should use it here rather than there, but they just do it. They have the inexplicit knowledge. They can't explain what the rules of grammar are. They just adhere to the rules of grammar. They know the rules of the game without being able to say in English what those rules are. It just usually feels right to them to speak in a particular way. So that's cultural knowledge. There are also inborn ideas, which are, they're in our genes. And of course, we also have personal experiences. So all these things come together. But all of it's incurring in the mind as ideas, and ideas can be changed, and they can be corrected and improved. Sometimes, I admit, this is absolutely hard to do, and many ideas are inexplicit. But so far, Throughout this article, I'm not seeing any clenched fist of reason. Um, I'm going to skip a paragraph, um, and I'm going to pick it up where he mentioned science. So finally we get to something where 
there's something approaching um, a discussion of reason. He says, quote, it's the cultural layer that stirs up the controversy because our culture has staked its survival and more than merely its own survival on the notion that the particular way its inmates construct the world is not the jumble of genetic, collective and individual patterns that its own sciences prove it to be. <laughs> okay, and he goes on, but end quote, you know what I'm going to say if you're listening to the topcast. Science proves nothing. Science proves nothing. It explains. And the explanations are not final. They're grand misconceptions about the world, but they are explanations of an objective reality that exists, which is not entirely in our own minds. Why? Because we can do experimental tests. We can get it to kick back in reliable and eventually predictable ways. Our minds are part of reality and do not construct all of it. Our representations of reality are not reality itself. We do not construct reality except in those places where we take literal resources, bricks and mortar, metal and paint and musical instruments, and then create stuff by building it. But this is so far confined to a narrow part of the surface of one planet. Much of the rest of reality really is independent of what we construct, so far, of course. Uh, the author goes on to say, so he's just said, um, the world is not the jumble of genetic, collective and individual patterns that its own sciences prove it to be, but the plain, unvarnished truth about the universe, which ought to be obvious to anyone anywhere who pays unbiased attention to the world around them, end quote. So this is the view he's criticizing, right? So he's saying... Um, our culture, so just to repeat this in case I lost you, he's saying that our culture has staked its survival on the notion that its inmates, people, uh, is not about a jumble of genetic collective and individual patterns, but rather it's the unvarnished truth about the universe. So he's saying that science... Its own sciences prove it to be a jumble. <laughs> but in fact, most people are saying in our culture that it revealed the science reveals the plain truth about the universe, which ought to be obvious to anyone who pays unbiased attention to the world around them. End quote. So he's kind of having a go at Richard Dawkins, right? Or a vision of Richard Dawkins. I'm not saying Richard Dawkins is an archetypical rationalist. The archetypical rationalist, the caricature of the rationalist might say something like that. I don't know of any rational. I know some rationalists. Even the prominent ones wouldn't be quite that strident to say that, oh, our culture, <laughs> um, science in particular, gives us the plain unvarnished truth about the universe, which should be obvious to anyone anywhere who pays unbiased attention to the world around them. No, far from it. Far from it. I think it's very rare for any rationalist, any scientist, anyone to say you get the unvarnished truth about the universe, even if they're not Papirian, they, you know, they say that. Far from it being obvious to anyone, it's not obvious. It is not obvious. Quantum mechanics is not obvious. General relativity is not obvious. Evolution by natural selection is not obvious. Even if you pay unbiased attention to the world, because you don't extract <laughs> any of those theories from the world. That's empiricism. That's the error of empiricism. Maybe he's critiquing the empiricists of the 17th century, perhaps the Baconian types. <laughs> I don't know. But it, it doesn't seem to represent 
modern day rationalists and scientists and so on. Um, it's pretty rare to hear a scientist speak about unvarnished truth that's obvious to everyone. They're more liable to say some people actually can't understand this stuff. It's not obvious to, you know, the people of lower IQs. And anyway, it's only probably true, not certainly, and unvarnished. Okay, so all of that seems to be unfair. But he goes on to say, quote, Thus, the only version of history that most people in the industrial world are willing to consider is one that explains how people stop believing all the obviously muddle-headed things they used to believe about the cosmos and learn to see reality that was sitting right out in front of them all along, which, of course, just happens to be the one we construct moment by moment as so we make our worlds, end quote. So again, this is a, a critique of the ancient view of science as being empiricist, that you just observe the world and then you get the knowledge out of it. Okay, some scientists sometimes talk like this, but, you know, pushed. They won't admit, they won't say, that, you know, you can observe the Big Bang, observe the core of a star, you know, actually observe single electrons and that kind of thing, or maybe let's say you can. But I just don't think that this holds, that the rationalists of the world speak in these terms or even think in these terms. Obviously muddle-headed things they used to believe about the cosmos and learn to see reality that was sitting right in front of them all along. Look, I don't understand this. Some people did move beyond superstition, you know, one set of claims about the world, to better claims, better explanations, better by those lights of being able to account for more phenomena in the universe that they could test for. Hard to vary explanations of what really exists out there. How do you know what really exists? Because they feature in those good explanations. Superstitions and myths and these things that were replaced by these good explanations, they knew nothing of electrons and photons, electricity and lasers and rockets and vaccines, all the unseen stuff, by the way, of physical reality. They knew nothing of it. Myths purported to explain the world in terms of unseen things, gods, but they were easy to vary. You could swap out one god for another god. And you couldn't test for them as the important thing. You couldn't test any prediction that those myths and superstitions made. The grand advance of science was, here's a claim that you can test in the world to see whether or not it actually tracks reality or not. Okay. So science and rationality reason, they bring into view what was previously unknown and unseen and not experienced. You know, you, let's recall you know, Richard Feynman on rainbows. Uh, rainbows are not made less beautiful for having understood the physical process that gives rise to them. I can appreciate all the beauty of a rainbow that someone who, you know, denigrates the power of science does. But I can also appreciate something more than they do as well about the remarkable process whereby you know, water droplets can act as refractors and reflectors, splitting up white light, often thought to be pure, but revealed by, you know, this raindrop, this rainbow, not to be, as a, as a mixture of all of these different colours. That light, having travelled 150 million kilometres from the surface of the sun, but where it was produced in the core of that star by unseen fusion reactions at 15 million, you know, Kelvin, 
the energy that produced there eventually creates the rainbow. That's that's an astonishingly beautiful fact. Just like the rainbow, different kinds of beauty. But hey, he goes on to say, "quote There are pr plenty of problems with that way of thinking about history, but the one that's most relevant to the project of this blog can be grasped by recalling." The last time you saw a cat staring intently at something that you... <laughs> I'll start again. There are plenty of problems with that way of thinking about history, but the one that's most relevant to the project of this blog can be grasped by recalling the last time you saw a cat staring intently at something that your eyes didn't see, end quote. So again, he's making a big deal about this cat of his um, uh, staring off into space and apparently seeing things because its eyes have been stimulated. I don't think that's at all the case. I've had cats most of my life. I've, I've still got two now. Um, I love my cats, but they're not particularly bright. <laughs> they stare off into space. Here's one theory about why they suddenly stare off into space and appear to be looking at the ghost or the, the being made of dark matter wandering through. <laughs> Here's my theory. Not only are their eyes spectacularly better than ours, especially at night, but they're staring off into space towards something they've heard or something they've smelt. Their hearing and sense of smell is better than a dog's, apparently. More of their brain is devoted to the sense of smell in particular. They're smelling stuff and, and hearing stuff that is beyond the range of our senses. That's why they turn their head and then look. They're probably, you know, following the scent. Possibly, I don't know. I'm just saying that the idea that they're seeing things, seeing things that we can't see, that are there in the room, is that's just an assertion, not a good explanation. I've given you an alternative. I don't know. We need to do a, a crucial test. Um, it could be done, by the way. You could have microphones, infrared cameras, and uh, chemical detectors in a room with a cat, and when it does look up and look around, has there been a sound produced at a frequency higher or lower than what you can normally hear? Is there a chemical now in the room that you know um, you, you you can't smell as a human being? You didn't notice beyond the range of your smell. Uh, if you have infrared, maybe there's something in the infrared. Maybe a cat can see infrared. I don't think it can though. But yeah, I just don't think cats are seeing things that we can't. I think they're hearing things. At night they are. At night they're certainly seeing things we can't see, but in a brightly lit room, it's not like they're seeing ghosts walking around. I don't think that's the case. That's the implication here, let's be honest. Um, I don't think there's a huge, deep mystery here. This doesn't reveal the reality of magic. Why do I mention magic? Because he's about to dive into magic. Okay. So he goes on to say, quote, the worlds constructed by different cultures don't just vary one from another in how they arrange the flurry of disconnected data that comes streaming in through the senses. They also vary in which data they include in their arra arrangements, which they exclude, what they consider important, and what gets dismissed as meaningless. It's entirely possible for the world of a given culture at a given era in its history to exclude utterly a range of common human experiences that the worlds of most other human cultures treat as having very great importance. We know this because the world of modern industrial culture does exactly this, and among the things that are excluded in that world, dismissed as non-existent and meaningless and imaginary are the raw materials of magic, end quote. Okay, so yeah, this is a, a criticism of 
the Western world and modernity, fashionable, of course, at the moment, but fashionable for decades now. Um, and it's, it just seems to be downplaying or criticising modernity, Western culture, the Enlightenment tradition, for the sin of rejecting certain tribal ways. Now, there might be some legitimacy here in that sometimes, you know, modernity might very well have been too quick to dismiss certain things. Cures for diseases that are natural that actually contain active ingredients that work and that kind of thing and other practices, maybe spiritual. But the fact is that modernity, often to its own detriment these days, does incorporate the so-called wisdom of other traditions when they're shown to work and even when they don't. That's the wonderful thing about this thing that we call Western civilization. It really does welcome all comers. More than any other culture that has ever existed. It is, and sometimes to its own detriment. Sometimes to its own detriment. Um, you know, Western culture welcomes those who are, yeah, wandering the streets dressed in robes as if they're from a millennia ago, preaching some version of, you know, the name your religion, or they dress in some way that an ancient tribe does, or even an extant tribe from another culture does. Western culture says, you're welcome here. Western culture embraces all of it in a way that no other culture does. No other culture opens its arms to the degree that the modern enlightenment societies do. Often our arms are too wide, and we do embrace nonsense, even at the political level, and it enters the moral zeitgeist and so on. You know, people are free to, to practice sense and nonsense from inside and outside Western culture, in Western culture. People are uh, you know, free to practice Buddhism in the West. Paganism exists in you know, modern America and Europe. No one's excluded in our culture, insofar as you don't want to destroy it all. But even then, even then you can espouse the fact that you want to destroy it all. And, and, and in some places in the West, you're met with little to no penalty. In fact, you can be celebrated for saying that it's all terrible and you wish it would all fall. Um, but to me, it sounds like the author here of this piece has a very specific, if not a specific person in mind, they have a specific social group in mind when they've written this article. Because it's just not true of this modern industrial culture that he's talking about. It might be true of particular individuals. But as I sit here now, I don't see that modern Western culture just out and out rejects the wisdom of other cultures. It just doesn't happen. As I say, often to its own detriment, it takes on even bad ideas. Western culture is vast and huge, and there are, it's multifaceted and complex, and there are people, this guy, for example, he's, he's bringing it in. <laughs> What's he saying? He's not part of Western of the modern industrial culture? Maybe he is saying it. He goes on to say, anyway, quote, what those raw materials are, how they relate to other aspects of the universe of human experience and how the operative mage identifies them and puts them to work will be the subject of quite a few posts a little later on. The point I'd like to make here is that the exclusion we're discussing is a very recent thing about the industrial world. End quote. No, it's not. Cultures reject other cultures. The Western world is the first to fully open its arms wide to welcome 
everyone. That's the recent thing. The recent thing is to be tolerant of everyone, even of the intolerant at times. So I don't think this is a very, the exclusion is a very recent thing. No, it's not. It's exclusion of, of other cultures was common. Um, as for the exclusion of magic in the Western world, I don't know if that's, well, maybe it, uh, on geological time it's recent, but in terms of Western culture, well, again, religion, traditional religion has replaced other religions and the scientific worldview, yeah, okay, it challenged religion and it challenged mythical ways of understanding stuff, but didn't entirely replace them. You know, the whole... The whole point of Western culture is that, again, it allowed for the liberal embrace of any worldview that you liked, modulo trying to actually destroy it. Um, he goes on to say, until the final triumph of the scientific revolution at the start of the 18th century, magic and a great many things connected with it were treated as everyday matters in Western cultures, as obviously real as weather or the misbehavior of kings, end quote. No doubt. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, what does he mean by magic? It's hard to tell. I went looking through uh, a couple of his other pages, just did a word search on magic. It wasn't clarified for me whether he just means, you know, certain practices and spells and the pagan type magic, um, which is ceremonial. But they would say, of course, it has real power. Okay, fine. Um, but if... He means the literal violation of physical laws. We've got a problem. Uh, but it could be inexplicit knowledge in certain ceremonies to relax people and help help you out psychologically. Okay, that, that you know, fine. Call that magic if you like. He goes on to say, quote, most people practiced magic in one form or another. It's rare to find a household commonplace book from the Middle Ages, the Renaissance or early modern period that doesn't have an assortment of spells for healing, divination and the like right in there alongside recipes for heather ale and mustard plasters, end quote. Yeah, absolutely, of course. We lacked modern science. We lacked medicine. When we found things that worked, then, of course, these ancient nostrums were rejected. Not because this was a unwillingness to embrace magic. It was just a, an experimental test in the real world. Got a stomachache? Try the spell or try the paracetamol. Let's see what works. Well, it's not the fault of industrialized medicine that the spell for stomachache failed to work. It's the fault of an explanation that just wasn't there. The claim that saying some words and imbibing a particular um, tincture um, was going to fix your disease. But insofar as these things in the modern day work, okay, people yeah, burning sage or casting spells, if it works for you psychologically, great. Okay, I was asked what would critical rationalism say about, the, well, my vision of knowledge creation entails that people are very different one from another. You know, you burn sage throughout the house, that might show no objective benefit in a randomized control trial as to whether it does anything for depression, let alone cancer. But there may be a selection effect. 
those who burn sage throughout the house may, uh, you know, that they may be the people who are already depressed and tend in the direction of rejecting science anyway. So they embrace the mystical and it's a, it's a placebo. So it works for them. And I would have no problem with that. I have no problem with people doing what it takes to relieve themselves of discomfort. Call it magic if you want. Call it the placebo effect. It doesn't matter. There's a place for that within a rational worldview. You know, it's sometimes been said that those who meditate tend to do so because they need to do so. So, of course, it works for them. <laughs> Perhaps the state achieved by, you know, meditation or sage burning or name your practice is also achieved routinely by others who almost never do so because they already have the inexplicit knowledge of how to do or how to achieve those states without trying hard at all. And Sam Harris makes the point, you know, um, that if there are people very early on who develop a facility with piano playing, you know, the virtuoso prodigies at age sort of three or four that can play amazing pieces on the piano, clearly they have lots and lots of inexplicit knowledge. They've picked it up very early on. Um, who knows how, but they have. They're skilled at it. It's, uh, they probably wouldn't be good teachers of it because they're so good at it, they can't tell you how they're doing what they're doing. Well, it may well be the case that you get those sort of virtuoso prodigies in terms of contemplative practice as well in the world. But they might never know it. They might never know they're a genius when it comes to contemplation and meditation. And no one else might know either that they are, except that they appear in the world to be exceedingly well-adjusted and happy people. Now, for the rest... They need spells and other things to get them there. I'm not denigrating any of this. Again, I say, you know, meditation is a genuine real thing, for example. I shouldn't be conflating that with casting spells. It's not, obviously. These things are different. I'm saying that there are people who would regard, and obviously the writer of this article is talking about magic as a real thing that can have real, real effects. So too with meditation. In both cases, they are separate from science because it's hard to do, uh, hard to objectively do an experiment in the world to test for the subjective nature of these things. Of course, there's objective tests you can do. You can do surveys and so on, psychologists too, to say that, ah, look, you know, people who engage in meditation, they really are you know, helped out by this. So too with the magic kind of thing. You know, um, so the fact is that, the, well, certainly in the case of meditation, absolutely real. As Sam Harris says, you can investigate the reality of meditation in the laboratory of your own mind. And Naval, you know, he says, what's the effect? If you're, if you're trying hard to do meditation, you're already doing it wrong. Um, my point is that there's nothing in an enlightened modern worldview informed by reason and science that rejects any of this a priori. Even so-called critical rationalism allows for this. It's, it's, it's completely silent on it. Conjecture stuff in your personal life all you like and try it out. If it works, keep it. Call it magic if you like. Of course, deluding yourself is no good, so you've got to beware there. You've got to be critical. Um, but this opposition between reason, the clenched fist of reason, and anything in the world that can bring peace and joy to those who need it, that's not reasonable. That's not a reasonable dichotomy to set up in the world. Reason is not bringing the fight here. 
as far as I can tell in this article. Maybe some people, rationalists, are a bit abrasive. But what I can say is that the representative of magic here is bringing the fight to reason because of rumours they've heard about reason or they're labouring under a misconception about rationality. But then people who promote rationality labour under a misconception about rationality. Stephen Pinker. Others. You know, but what can you do? He goes on to say, quote, the relationship between magic and religion all through those centuries has been misunderstood and misstated by almost everyone outside of a handful of scholarly fields. Valerie Flint's The Rise of Magic in Early Medieval Europe, for example, shows that one of Christianity's major selling points in the post-Roman Dark Ages was that its priests and monks were considered better at magic than their pagan rivals. From the fall of Rome straight through to the late 14th century, charms and incantations were forbidden only if they invoked someone other than God, Christ, or the saints. It was very late in the Middle Ages with the dominance of the nominalist movement in Christian philosophy that people started looking askance at traditional Christian magic, and it took centuries for that disapproval to evolve into the claim that the thing so heartily disapproved of didn't exist in the first place. End quote. So... This is an historical account. There's no references. There's no other literature I can look at. It's a vision of history. And when you do history, the important thing is that you, well, if you're doing proper history, you should be referring to historic documents. Where can I go to to check these claims? I'm not particularly interested in trying to check these claims. You know, everything that's said there um, is checkable. Maybe the sources disagree one with another. Maybe you've got to massage the facts to get these things out. So I just don't know. I don't know if what is being said about the history of this is correct at all. And yeah, <laughs> as I say, I'm not interested in checking at this point. Um, I went, like I said, I went through his website um, and looked up. There's something he posted called the High Doctrine of Magic, which just goes on for pages and pages and pages. It still didn't clarify for me, you know, exactly what magic is to the author. But you know, I admit, I didn't comprehensively search the whole website. Um, he goes on to say, quote, the dubious sort of history I mentioned earlier, which treats all previous thought as a collection of obvious stupidities that humanity only got around to outgrowing in the 18th century, very often seizes on the decline and fall of magic at the dawn of the scientific revolution as a case study. See, everybody believed in this stuff until the early Enlightenment finally gave us all a clue, end quote. Who hurt this guy? Who hurt this author? <laughs> Who has upset him and insulted him? Who is he, <laughs> who is he lashing out against? <laughs> Just uh, um, look, I guess there are some people, yeah, there are, okay, I admit, there are some people out there who are poor representatives of rationality who just go really hard at religion. As I admit, you know, when I came out of school, I probably went too hard. All the zealotry of a convert, so to speak. This is a feature of, let's admit it, young males. I know, young females do it as well. It's a feature of youth. <laughs> and there are benefits to that. But there's also a, 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 there can be a callousness that comes along with this, you know, that people have their happy little set of beliefs. Maybe they're irrational, you know, magic and so on. And some people can be insulting. All right. And you've got a choice then if, if, if you're in that position of having these beliefs about, magic or other things that people regard as irrational you can't you can either ignore them or you can engage but why do you need to engage if it's working for you what does it matter what do you care you know you can go and help others who also endorse your magic it doesn't you know 
people who are oncologists, um, maybe they do. Maybe they get really upset if people say that you know oncology is a bad thing. But you know, most often I think what they do is they just get on with the work of doing oncology, getting on with the work of helping people, getting on with the work of helping to treat cancer. That's what they do. That's the greatest refutation of people who say this stuff doesn't work, is to just use it and show that it does. So too with magic. You, know, you don't need to write long essays about how you know these other people reject your ideas and they're wrong to do so. Just show that it works. That's all. Um, he goes on to say, quote, take the time to read the ancient Greek philosophers and you'll get to watch the same revolt in full swing two millennia earlier than ours, just as Johannes Kepler cast horoscopes to pay the rent, and Isaac Newton devoted as much of his time to alchemy as he did to physics, end quote. Yeah, but neither of those examples show, you know, that, that horoscopes work or that alchemy works. We know that alchemy can't work, chemically speaking. There's no chemical reaction you can do to produce gold. Uh, of course, nuclear reactions, in theory, are made to produce gold from, you know, hydrogen but that's a separate thing newton knew nothing about that so newton did waste his time in alchemy he did waste his time whether or not all the time was wasted in alchemy you know in terms of civilization maybe he showed what wouldn't work this didn't work this didn't work and so we ruled out alchemy sooner than we would have if newton hadn't done all that work i don't know i don't know enough about the history of alchemy but if the author here is saying that alchemy's legit in some way and that's magic oh that, that's nonsense um skipping a little uh he brings up plato <clears throat> he says plato arguably the pivotal figure of the greek enlightenment inherited pythagoras's mathematical magic but chucked out the magic in favor of the first draft of greek logical method and wrote scornfully about the way the mages of his time peddled spells and initiations door-to-door -door in Athens, end quote. <laughs> well, no one likes a door-to-door -door salesman. No one likes a door-to-door -door salesman. It doesn't matter what they're selling. They'd be selling iPhones. It's irritating. <laughs> you don't get them much these days. So I can imagine, you know, Plato's there. He's trying to write the Republic and people are banging on the door trying to sell him a spell, interrupting. I'm the, one of the greatest geniuses of all time. I'm, I'm setting down part of the Western canon here. Go away with your spells. I can understand that, you know, <laughs> why he would devote a few lines to, to, to writing scornfully about the way the majors of his time peddled spells. <laughs> they're probably rude. <laughs> maybe, they were, maybe they were writing barbed articles at the time about how Plato's reason was an ugly feature of modern Greek culture. You know, <laughs> who knows? He goes on to write, okay, not Plato, this author. He writes, quote, the philosophers of the centuries right after Plato had even less time for magic than he did. <laughs> End quote. Yes. Just as car mechanics and chemists do, they've got less time for magic as well. We've all got jobs. We've got stuff to do. The job of a philosopher is not to be a magician nor explain anything outside of their interests. They can do their own thing. What were the, what were the magicians and majors doing? Let's turn this around. <laughs> Why weren't the majors writing more about philosophy? What's the problem here? <laughs> and if you look, um, 
look, if you're Plato and you've gone to the local mage because you've got, as I said before, if you've got tummy you got tummy ache, you're Plato. You go after the local mage. They give you a, a nostrum. They perform a spell. And the next day you're even worse. Maybe you've got some cause to write scornfully about them. Maybe this is what happened over and again to mages because medicine was so terrible back then. Try this treatment. Doesn't work. Try this one. That's actively harmful. So this is a problem, right? People wanted to be relieved of pain. They wanted to be relieved of disease. They wanted to survive longer than they did. They wanted to feel better. But they were in pain. They were suffering. They were tired. It was an awful time. They were... They, they wanted something, and so magic and spells and that kind of thing was offered, but it didn't work. It's not around today as much prominently because we've got stuff that works. If it worked, we'd use it. Genuinely, people are in extremis in disease and depression and everything else. If this stuff reliably worked for a, an overwhelming majority of people, don't you think... Don't you think there would be corporations clamoring to have an institute of magic and spells? They'd be selling the stuff. But no, they sell the stuff that works and they make billions of dollars on stuff that works. That's how the world works. There's no great conspiracy here. You probably would say there's a conspiracy. Okay. Um, <laughs> he goes on to say, quote, by the beginning of the common era, practicing magic was strictly for peasants, the urban poor and exotic people in faraway places who supposedly didn't know any better. Lucian of Samosata, the amazing Randy of the first century CE, wrote a series of hilarious satires on the flim-flam that he claimed was being practiced by the mages and prophets of his time. It's among the recurrent themes of these satires that most of the people clueless enough for to fall for such obvious humbug were illiterate yokels. <laughs> End quote. The whole tone of this article is butthurt. Why is he taking it so personally? So he's he's clearly having a go at people today, rationalists who are criticizing magic, modern day magic, that he's a proponent of. And he's saying, oh, look, you rationalists, there's a long history of this. There's a long history of this going back to the beginning of the common era. Now, you know, people would say that, you know, it was only for the poor and the, the, it's illiterate yokels that do this. As I say, he could, a mage today, insofar as they exist, just go on, do, do your thing, make progress. If what you're doing works, use it on those who, who it works on and be happy. And by the right way, you know, illiterate yokels. <laughs> That's very judgy, judgy McJudgeface. You know, <laughs> who, what, what's wrong with an illiterate yokel? Okay. Keep going. Um, not much more to read here, I don't think. Uh, I'll wrap it up um, before the end, I think. Uh, he goes on to say, quote, Now, of course, there was still plenty of magic being practiced in the classical world in those years, and not just by yokels. The Greek Enlightenment, like the European, like the later European one, was fashionable on the wealthier end of society and only penetrated down the social pyramid to a limited extent, end quote. So he's saying... The later European one was only fashionable for the wealthy and only penetrated down the social pyramid to a limited extent. Well, that is up and down, straight up and down false. Not true. For one thing, we're still in the European Enlightenment. 
the British and European Enlightenment. Let's not get into that now. And it's been the best thing for everyone on the planet, for everyone on the social pyramid. In, indeed, it's turned the least wealthy people into more wealthy people than the most wealthy people in bygone eras. Anyone of modest means who possesses a phone with Uber Eats has a wider selection of foods for dinner than the richest monarchs of the Middle Ages, by far, by far. The least wealthy among us are more wealthy than the wealthiest in the past. And, and, and it's egalitarian, this European enlightenment, which continues. After all, many of us, are, you know, Elon Musk, let's say that Elon Musk is the richest person in the world. I don't know. The richest person seems to, you know, uh, the top three places keep changing, don't they? <laughs> something, something like that anyway. Um, but all of us are equally wealthy compared to Elon Musk in certain respects. I mean, anyone with the very latest and best iPhone has a phone that Elon Musk himself cannot best. The Enlightenment equalizes and reason equalizes in a way that traditional wisdom kept and guarded by experts, perhaps expert majors, doesn't. Uh, priests and prophets and cultists and people who come from supernatural traditions, they tend in the authoritarian direction. And this is something that, you know, the scientific tradition rejects. It rejects that. Perhaps in rejecting that, you know, you, we're not supposed to simply bow down to the authority of the person who says this magic works. I don't need to test it. And any attempt to have me test it is itself a biased form of patriarchal Western society. You know, our standards today, our criteria for reason and progress are better. We've learned something. You know, these I, well, let's just read. He says, he goes on to say, furthermore, then as now, there were always members of the educated classes who kept up an interest in magic. And there were certain traditional organizations, the mysteries in the classical world, Freemasonry in the modern one, that didn't exactly practice magic, but offered initiations that were rooted in old magical traditions and passed on teaching symbolism and ceremonials rich with magical possibilities end quote no doubt yeah those traditions were also rich in authoritarianism and secrecy not exactly the way we do things now with our openness and egalitarianism and value of the individual the individual's capacity to generate knowledge and be in charge of themselves rather than defer to the authority of uh, the wise men and the mages. He goes on to say, quote, as the charisma of Greek rationalism faded and its internal contradictions became steadily more problematic, in turn, these survivals became the seeds from which magic promptly revived, end quote. Um, so that's just an assertion. He just said <laughs> the charisma of Greek rationalism faded and its internal contradictions became steadily more problematic. What internal contradictions? Just maligning this Greek rationalism, Greek philosophy. Yeah, sure, there were these period called Dark Ages, but as you know, people have said recently, um, probably misnamed. Uh, it's not like wisdom was forgotten there, but there was this period where there was... Uh, the Greek, ancient Greece was a mini enlightenment. Rapid progress was happening, certainly in philosophy, mathematics. Who knows what would have happened to Athens if it had have persisted for longer? 
but you know that knowledge was stagnated for a while uh once ancient greece ceased to be the powerhouse of progress that it was and the middle ages you know dark ages middle ages were was much more slow progress so what what the author of this article then goes on to say is you know, this is part of the cycles thing so i'm not going to read through it he says that magic comes back uh, and christianity was infused with with magic um i don't know anything about the history that he's giving in this paragraph so i don't want to read it because i don't know if it's true and i don't know i don't know about that knowledge at all they said i'll just skip to where he says quote this same pattern so he's just talked about the rise and fall of magic can be traced in the life cycles of other civilizations in India, for example, where the local version of the rationalist revolt going on in the 6th century BCE and in China where it took off a little later. Today's rationalists like to point out that Greek rationalists, Indian rationalists and Chinese rationalists, not to mention their peers and other civilizations, didn't embrace the same beliefs as the current example of the rationalist species. And of course, they're quite correct in saying so. They run off the rails when they insist that because people in other civilizations didn't embrace the peculiar way that modern industrial civilization constructs the world as the plain unvarnished truth, this means that these other rationalisms weren't really rationalists. End quote. So again, this is <laughs> he's got particular people in mind. <laughs> he's arguing with someone in his head. Uh, like who who talks about this plain unvarnished truth that he keeps using this phrase? Not people who've read Popper, for example, but even more broad than that. You know, I don't tend to hear this phrase. So he's got someone, I don't know, someone in mind, or some group of people in mind that he's responding to here. It'd be better if he sat up front, you know, this is, this is who I'm responding to, an article I'm responding to, this other blog post or something. But no, just general rationalism, whatever rationalism this is. It's a problem I have, Lena. This is why I like to quote people. This is what I'm doing right now, literally. You know, what I do with Deutsch and Popper and Pinker and whoever, have the quotes. Don't just talk about the general because you do that and it's like, well, who are you representing? What ideas are you? Are you arguing with a chimera? You're arguing with a shadow. You're not actually engaging with anyone. Insofar as you're engaging with an idea, it's an idea that you've invented in your head, a version of an idea no one is willing to defend. This is the case of straw manning. You can't straw man someone easily when you quote them in full at length, at length, I should say. In full, yeah. Um, don't say, so what you're saying is, okay, that old trope. <laughs> now he's providing a summary of what he regards as rationalism, but I don't know what it is. I don't know who's talking about it. It doesn't resemble what, I regard as rationalism. And so therefore I can't defend the thing that he's attacking. All I can do is explain what I understand rationalism to be, by which I mean um, the capacity to correct errors. That's it. That's what rationalism, rationalism is about. Um, the, the stance of trying to correct errors for the purpose of making progress and improving things uh, Errors where? Errors in your ideas, errors in your best explanations of the world. That's rational. That's the rational thing to do is to continue to correct errors. And reason is a broad category of approaches from 
you know, mathematics, science, philosophy, these are parts of reason. And we apply rational methods, the error correction in all of them. That's sort of a distinction, sort of a distinction. Not hard and fast, but the way I like to try and understand this thing. Derived from the work of David Deutsch, I would say. Um, <clears throat> but not meant to be a quote. <laughs> okay. Um, so he says, this. the author says, quote, that objection, um, in other words, that other rationalisms that came before modern rationalism, um, that objection is as predictable as it is hopelessly wrong. Each culture constructs its own world, end quote. It's knowledge, it can, each culture constructs its knowledge of the world. It doesn't construct the world, but insofar as it constructs its own buildings, constructs its own buildings in the physical world, then yes. But constructing ideas in your mind is not the same as constructing the world. It really isn't. It really isn't. There's a world out there. So he says, each culture constructs its own world, its own manhold, atop the common foundation provided by human neurology and instinct. And so each civilization's version of rationalism attempts to make rational sense of a different world, end quote. No, it's not a different world. They're not making sense of a different world. Maybe they're making sense of the society around them, which is different. But the world, the overall world, includes other cultures. So Western culture includes other cultures and we can make sense of those other cultures and those cultures can make sense of us or the people the individuals in them i should say the individuals in them we know um that it's the same world because uh, insofar as our understandings of it are accurate they work to produce stuff that works either the knowledge that you have is going to get your rocket to the moon uh, your vaccine's going to work or your computer computes or it doesn't there are objective measures of these things in terms of you know, technologies, advancements, predictions, and the observations made. The photons really do land there and not there. That can be checked by anyone independent of culture, independent of culture, independent of anything about the person. One of the great strengths of science is you can extract out the background of the person. They can agree on, well, there's the dot and there's not the dot. We can agree. We can converge on reality. We don't just construct it. Okay, he goes on to say, quote, every other civilization's rationalist movement has been as convinced as ours that its way of thinking about the universe was the plain, unvarnished truth, end quote. I'm not convinced about those blanket statements, either about our civilization's rationalist movements. He says movement, but I think there are multiple rationalist movements. We know that there is this schism between various people calling them rational. I've already said one, you know, like Stephen Pinker would say he's a rationalist. I suppose I would call him as such, but he's not the, he wouldn't be a critical rationalist. He doesn't seem to endorse conjectural knowledge, for example. So there's one difference. Um, so yeah, critical rationalism, the idea of conjectural knowledge, fallibilism, so on and so forth is all-encompassing, doesn't a priori rule out anything that's not science by any stretch. It doesn't rule out, and even Wittgenstein, you know, he didn't rule out religion as well. He just said you couldn't talk about it. He said it could still exist. You know, Popper would say, you can talk about this thing. 
you know, insofar as it's a claim about the world, and the world doesn't just mean physical world, anything, anything, any claim that can be made can be assessed, can be critiqued, can be explained. Um, so it's all-encompassing. Uh, now, he, he speaks there about other civilizations' rationalist movements. Well, look, how many of them were there, really? I'm just taking it on faith. Doesn't, does rationalist just mean an attempt to understand the world? You know, so the Chinese had their uh, attempts to do this. Ancient Greece did. The, um, people in the Middle Ages. But how much were they really rationalist? Like the, the Enlightenment, the modern Enlightenment that continues, that began, you know, around the Renaissance, you know, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, continues through to today. Like that does stand apart. That really does stand apart. Why? Because of, as David Deutsch explains in the beginning of Infinity, a culture of criticism. The culture of criticism is something that is different. Okay, yeah, so he keeps, he goes on to say, um, uh, he talks about the plain unvarnished truth again. So this plain unvarnished truth that supposedly the rationalists endorse, well, you know, these are interpretations, we say. Um, he then goes into a lengthy history as well, mentioning everything from, um, well, We've just got a whole bunch of names there that I don't know who they are. It talks about doctrine and ritual of high magic in 1854. Um, the, something about the flowering of psychical research at the end of the 19th century during the flowering of parapsychology from the 40s through to the 70s. Okay, so... Um, and, and concludes this particular paragraph with, crucially to the, <laughs> crucially to the breakdown of our civilization's rationalist worldview is proceeding at something very like the usual pace <laughs> end quote so he's got a barrow to push he wants to say ah look there's a pattern here what do we think about patterns in history they're not bound to repeat that's historicism that's the poverty of historicism this idea that you can look to the past and say there were these cycles i'm not convinced there are these cycles let's say there were they have been. That doesn't mean that it's going to happen in the future. This idea that the breakdown of our civilization's rationalist worldview, I don't see that at all. I see accelerating growth. I see improvements all the time. I see every reason for optimism. There are blips and there are concerns, there are problems because we are never in an unproblematic state. And that's what animates us to talk about the problems. But the overall trajectory is onwards and upwards and better and more progress and happiness and joy and fun. And it's great. Um, more wealth, more people. Rational approaches to the world are improving everything across all areas. Scientific, philosophical, moral, dare we say spiritual as well. We have embraced recently over the last few decades because of the promotion of some people, a new kind of spirituality, an enriched spirituality. Now, people are even returning to traditional religions to some extent. So far from, you know, this, uh, this downcast view of um, the breakdown of our civilization's rationalist worldview, I don't see that at all. I don't see any indications of this. I think this is someone with a barrow to push that, you know, obviously 
is upset with some people, wants to say their vision of magic is somehow or other worthy as a competitor to the scientific worldview. I would say just insofar as it works, do it with the people that you do it. You don't need to proselytize when things work. And why be down so down on reason and rationality? Like he's having a go at rationality throughout this. It's called the clenched fist of reason. Why be so down on it? Um, the, the whole point of reason and rationality is it, it just embraces the practices that work insofar as we talk about things that are good for people. It's only a threat. It's only a threat and a worry. It should be only a threat and a worry to liars, boasters, those exaggerating, those who make claims that won't work when tested. And what's wrong with that kind of rationality and reason? What's wrong with protecting the vulnerable when they need protection? We may need more of it. I'm not talking about government intervention. I'm saying that people of reason need to stand up and to call out nonsense when they see it. This doesn't need to be seen as denigrating spirituality. Look, presently there are whole political movements devoted to attracting young people, Christian, sorry, children, children and youth in particular. Um, but there are these political movements into, they're trying to drag children and young people into a weird kind of cult where they're supposed to change their gender change their sex, change their sexuality, because it's fashionable. It's fashionable to be non-binary. It's fashionable to be anything other than straight and cis, male and female. Uh, there are reasons to be concerned about this, because people are, children are having their bodies changed in ways that are irreversible for now. Now, look, I'm not an essentialist. There is no such thing as the, the the male mind and the female mind. There might be characteristics, you know, different between them. But minds are universal. And off into a distant future, you'll be able to occupy whatever body you want. Fine. Yeah, that, that's the non-essentialist part. Okay, That's the, the truly gender fluid part of things. But we're not there yet. And because we're not there yet, people are refusing to accept reality, the reality of where we are in 2023, for example. People are being offered magic. They're being offered the opportunity to change their bodies in ways that are irreversible, being told it is reversible. Now, the most vulnerable, young people in extremists, young people who are depressed, young people who are confused, and weren't we all when we were of a certain age, they've got little defense against this, often precisely because the forces of reason have relinquished the ground to those with untested and untestable claims. Or rather often, uh, claims tested and shown to be awfully damaging, to be refuted by actual results in the real world in a large number of people. Girls who've had hysterectomies at, as young teens because they claim to be boys, but no one criticizes that claim. And they, they may be claiming to be a boy, not because they really feel like a boy, but because they want attention. That there's some other need they have being served by claiming to be a boy, and they're ushered into the operating theater to have their reproductive organs removed and supposedly their gender changed. And we might say the doctors that are doing this are offering them magic, magically being transforming them into a real boy. But of course, then the girl, and these stories are becoming more common. These stories are becoming more common. 
Then they turn around at age 21 and say they they regret it all and they want to sue because no one ever challenged them. No one ever said, this might not be a good idea. Sit down and let's talk about this. Let's reason this through. Let's think rationally, not entirely emotionally. Let's understand stuff here. When they say you can reverse this, you can't. Maybe one day in the future, okay, when we've got cybernetic bodies, we can do this. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. This is the... This is the compassion of reason and rationality, to recognize a problem in the world and to correct it before it becomes uncorrectable, before we do a thing that we can't reverse, because entropy is a thing and imperfection is a thing and limited human knowledge is a thing. That's not a clenched fist. That's the hand of help to people in, in, in distress. And, and, and these days, with respect to that very issue that I'm talking about, people being manipulated politically, this is the reason for rationality and reason, among many other things, not to mention progress in society, of course. So don't be upset. Don't be upset if people challenge your magical claims. It's just, you know, people wanting to be reasonable and in many cases compassionate as well. Um, okay, I'm skipping a bit, and I'll pick it up where he says, quote, sooner or later, the things that have been excluded from the world by any rationalist system will include things that can't be ignored without putting the survival of civilization at risk. And when those things are ignored anyway, as they normally are, the consequences are all too familiar from the historical record, end quote. The extinction of societies over time is a consequence of not embracing reason enough. The cure for this all too familiar consequences of civilizations being at risk, the cure is more rationality and reason, not less. If something has been excluded from the world, knowledge, I suppose, that puts civilization at risk, it is reason and knowledge creation and problem solving that will bring it back. Wishing it weren't so, isn't going to help. Using magic won't cut it when the asteroid is heading our way. But I don't see any sign of this thing that is putting civilization at risk. I, 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 things are only getting better, irrevocably getting better. Okay, so he goes on to say, quote, that's why rationalist movements in their final years, when it finally becomes impossible to ignore these things any longer, always end up making peace with the realms of magic, myth, and religion. They've previously spent so many years and so much effort denouncing. To put the same thing another way, that's why the magic or the esoteric religion of a waning civilization ends up absorbing the heritage of that civilization's broken down rationalism, repurposing it to cope with the unmet needs of time and placing it in a context of practice that keeps it from blinding itself with its own abstractions quite so readily as when given free reign. End quote. So that's one vision of history. 
The history of the world, however, is a history of static societies that rejected reason and progress and error correction and rationality eventually to some degree or the other. Dominated by anti-rational memes that slowed progress, they these societies eventually failed to make any, any progress. Their means of error correction was destroyed, switched off in their minds by hoping that magical thinking could save them. That was their circumstance. That could be our circumstance, but it doesn't seem to be. It's taking on anti-rational ideas. That's the history of the world. Dead, dead civilizations were not killed off by the deployment of too much reason and rationality, but rather for want of it. Okay, last paragraph that I'll read of his article, and it is the last paragraph of the article. Quote, Magic, as I suggested in last month's post, is the reset button for minds that have allowed their worlds, their representations, to get out of sync with the reality those representations are meant to describe. In all ages, that's highly useful for individuals. At certain times, which occur with remarkable predictability in the lives of civilizations, that's necessary for entire societies. We live in such a time, in case you haven't noticed. End quote. Prophecy. Prophecy. The, the idea that we live in these times where we're going to need magic, the reset button for minds that have allowed their worlds or representations to get out of sync with the reality. No, I don't, I don't buy any of this. But perhaps, you know, what I will concede is that some people can benefit from what might be called magical practices. Fine. Let those individuals do as they wish. We don't understand everything. If someone wants to burn sage in order to feel better or to cast a spell in order to feel better, I've got no problem with that. It fits within a rational worldview. It is when you say, this thing can actually work for you, regardless of who you are, but you can't test it. And if your experimental test reveals that it doesn't work, it still does. That's where we've got a problem. Russell Brand, I noticed recently, um, you know, he's into all this magical stuff. <laughs> but I noticed recently in an interview, he said something quite funny and telling. He said that when his pregnant wife was in pain, he didn't want the Reiki healer in the house. He wanted the Western trained doctor in the lab coat with the pills and the injectables. <laughs> quite right. When the chips are down, you want the best explanations. When you're mildly psychologically uncomfortable, and Western medicine and science and reason hasn't got much to offer because it hasn't paid much attention to the minor inconveniences of life, then maybe magic can help. Maybe it's better than nothing. Maybe. Maybe at least it can, you know, casting this spell, saying these words, burning this thing, candles, whatever, can at least distract you for a while from your boredom and depression. And I imagine that certainly can be a problem for some people. There's an epidemic indeed of boredom and depression because people have failed to find the problem to fall in love with. Okay, I think that's enough. Um, again, to do Lily justice, let's just answer her question. I see no other wave of this coming and I'm not persuaded that there were waves. I'm just taking it as faith that his account of history was that there was waves of rationality and spirituality. He didn't use that word, he used magic. I don't know that I'd conflate those two words necessarily. I think there is a rational way of understanding spirituality that someone like Sam Harris would espouse. 
um, that wouldn't include magic that this fellow espouses. Because I get the sense that this fellow is talking about literal supernaturalism. And I think that literal supernaturalism isn't necessarily what spirituality is about. But it might very well be what magic is about. I don't know. Whatever the case, even if there were these cycles of rationality and spirituality, that is no reason to presume they will continue. That would be induction. That's historicism. That's thinking you can predict the future evolution of entire civilizations based upon what happened in the past. It's also a Marxist idea as well. <laughs> Therefore, we need to implement this political idea. Therefore, we need to implement more magic. It's one perspective on the past. I think that our story is more like a tale of people repeatedly escaping darkness and stasis. Perhaps some useful stuff in that process is rejected along the way. But reason and rationality are the processes by which you can, indeed you will, rediscover it if it's a solution to the problems that you have. That's what reason does. And individuals can do this. So individuals who want to pursue magic should do so and test for themselves in the laboratory of their own minds and their own life experience the degree to which this thing works. Popper's message is spiritual, if you like. It's the thing that gives life meaning. It's the thing that can fill the void that maybe people who turn to magic are trying to fill. Find a problem and fall in love with it until you find a solution. But even when you do find a solution, you'll find children problems, which are even more delightful. That sounds pretty magical. And it's certainly rational. It's a nice place to end, I think. Until next time. Bye-bye.